Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. We're going to look at Psalm 17 today. So we're going to open up Psalm 17, and while you're turning there, I'll pray for us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, I pray for these next few minutes together, even as we go over truths probably that most, if not all of us, have heard before, have thought of before. Maybe we've all even taught these truths before. Uh, I pray that they would become freshly alive in our hearts, that they would burn, that they would shine, that they would be transformative uh, to grow us up in grace, to grow us up into godliness, to make us into the men, the leaders, the ministers you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Psalm chapter 17. Again, I don't know 100% for sure, but almost certainly it was written when David uh, was fleeing from King Saul, okay, as it seems so many of his psalms were. And we're really going to look at the idea of David's satisfaction this morning. Okay, so... Um, being satisfied, being content, really having a sense of security in Christ. And so let's start in verse 1. We're going to look at the first six verses. And the first point would just be this. See me, in a sense. David, like in many of the Psalms, is saying, look at me, pay attention to me, care about me, see me. So Psalm 17, verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me hear my speech. Now, we've looked at times when David has prayed things like this before. Uh, at first glance, it can be jolting because it seems like he's spending so much time declaring his righteousness, which in the New Testament, we probably do have a more deeper understanding of how total depravity works and how even our best deeds are touched with sinful motives. Uh, David had probably more of a shadowy understanding of that. Maybe early in his life, he had even less of an understanding of that. But this prayer is still in the Bible. It's still a good way to pray because we've said before, David is not saying, I'm sinlessly righteous before your throne in your courtroom. I could be vindicated based on my own righteousness. But he's saying, in this human conflict that I have going on, Saul is the bad guy, I'm the good guy. Not perfectly so, but Saul's a liar. I'm not a liar. Saul uses violence in sinful ways to accomplish his means. I don't do that. And it's a good biblical way, even in the New Testament. Think about Luke chapter 18. You come before God like you come before a just judge and you plead your cause. Lord, I feel like I'm in this human conflict. I don't want to sinfully take matters into my own hand like some kind of vigilante. So I'm trying to listen again. Most of us would never be a vigilante with a sword or with a gun, but we might be a vigilante with our words, right? We are very tempted to slander, to cut down, to be sinfully judgmental, overly critical of people. Uh, we tend to give ourselves a pass 
on our dark moments and our sins, and we tend to become hypercritical of those that we think are against us. And David is trying to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to present my case to you. I'm going to let you fight my battles for me. Now, look again at verse 3, what he says there. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing This makes me think about in the New Testament, uh, in John chapter 21, when Jesus is reinstating Peter. You remember this? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's saying, yes, yes. But by the end, he's grieved. He's saying, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I mean, just, just think about the state of Peter's heart in that moment. He knows how sinful he is. He knows how screwed up he is. I mean, it was days earlier he had made this bold, arrogant promise and vow I'll never deny you. I'll die with you, even if these other 10 bozos bail out. Not me. Never. And now he's sufficiently humbled. He's being broken. But he can honestly say in that moment, Lord Jesus, you know I love you. I don't perfectly love you, but you're omniscient. You know all things. You see the depth of my heart. And you know there's some genuine love there because you put it there. And in a sense, that's the way that David is praying right here. Okay. Now, when he says, you've tested me by night, what does he mean by that? could mean two things, and maybe it means both of these things. It may be, okay, Lord, you alone are the one that knows the depths of my thoughts, right? Sometimes when I get alone, maybe when we're lying in bed at night and we're kind of mulling over the day or thinking about what's coming tomorrow, we get alone with our thoughts. I mean, that's when some of our worst thoughts, worries, fears, anxieties can surface. And David's saying, nobody else sees that stuff. All my men don't see it, but you see it, God. You know it's there. And you're testing me. You you know me at the worst level. And again, but even still compared to Saul, I'm trying to walk righteously with you. The other thing is, uh, he may be thinking about the time specifically in the dark of night where he had a chance to kill Saul. You know what I mean? We are who we are most truly when we're all alone or when we're the fewest people that are going to see us and we feel like we can get away with stuff. And David said, hey, I had a chance to kill him. I didn't do it then. And oh, by the way, I don't even speak ill of him, God. I try not to go around slandering this guy. Now, David's saying, verse 4, I've stayed holy. I've kept my paths from the violent. Okay, I don't act like them. How does he do it? This is is an earlier way for David to say what a later psalmist is going to say. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, Lord. I know your word. I read your word. I think about your word. I love your word. And by your grace, I'm seeking to obey it. Okay. Look at verse 7, excuse me, verse 5, where he talks about these slippery paths. My steps have fell fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Spurgeon had some great commentary on this where he basically said, well, what's the problem? Is the way that God calls his saints to walk slippery? And Spurgeon very wisely said, no. But our feet are still prone to slip because we're so sinful. I mean, God's path is sure. There's nothing wrong with God's path. The problem is not in the path. The problem is in the person trying to walk on the path. That's where the problem is because my feet, my feet in a sense, even as a Christian, have a sinful will that sometimes still want to divert back into old paths of sinful self-protection, sinful self-vindification. And we've got to fight against that. Okay. So the first thing David's just saying, see me down here, Lord. I feel like I'm fighting this battle, but I'm losing this battle, even though I'm really trying to be holy. And I feel like Saul keeps winning. I mean, why am I still on the run? Why am I still living in a cave? Why am I still persecuted when I'm doing my best, by your grace, to live a good life? And Saul seems like he has gone off the deep end. 
Second point is this, save me. I don't want you just to see me. I mean, I do want the emotional comfort of knowing that you're near, knowing that you're caring, knowing that you're looking on me, but I want some practical action. I want to practically be set free. Look at what he says starting in verse 7. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Okay? Um, think, think about this, guys. Wondrously show your loving kindness. Again, loving kindness was a, a word in the Hebrew hesed that was used to talk about this covenantal kind of love. Marital faithfulness. That's the closest thing we have in modern day. And David's saying, if you have spiritually married me, if you've chosen me, if you have put your name on me, I want you to live out that faithfulness. I don't want to just have the, the ring, so to speak. I want to have the experience of your love. And then you look what he says in verse 8 when he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Probably has the idea of the pupil. You just think about how instinctively we guard and protect our pupil. There's been a couple of times when my wife would come up to me kind of unannounced and say, oh, you've got something there in your eyebrow. Let me get it for you. I'm like, oh, wait. I mean, I love you, honey. I trust you. But when you just kind of come at me unannounced with your fingernails close to my eyeball, I'm sensitive. I draw back. I mean, my first reaction is to protect myself. And David is saying, God loves his people that much, like the apple of his eye, like his pupil. He protects us. He cares about us. He knows this. I mean, part of what David is doing right now, he's preaching truth to himself. He's reminding himself. He's meditating. Verse 9, from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth, they speak proudly. Now, some translations will talk about their heart that's covered in fat, and that would almost be a more literal translation. Again, it probably means two things. One, they're cold. They're insensitive. There's no warmth. There's no compassion. There's no tenderness. I mean, they, they are ruthlessly pursuing David. They hate him. And again, just pause, guys, because some of us can read this and say, man, this is interesting. I get it. That's what David went through. And I've had a couple of hard times in my life, but I don't have anybody trying to murder me. Okay, good. But 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that we do have an enemy, worse than King Saul. <laughs> Satan, who roars around, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking to devour Christians. And if you read it in context... Part of what it talks about, the verse right before, I mean, 1 Peter 5.8 speaks of Satan prowling, roaring, trying to devour Christians. The verse, verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It, it's a verse about prayer, and it's a verse about worry. It's a verse about when we're tempted to believe God doesn't really care for me, and then I get worried because it's like God's not taking care of me. i got to take care of myself. That's the jaws of Satan. Now, I don't know about y'all, but probably since high school, I've been aware there's some verse in Peter that talks about Satan being like a lion trying to devour Christians. I probably even memorized it at some point pretty on. But I don't think I was aware of the context until a few years ago. I think if somebody had kind of pressed me in the moment and said, okay, you can't pull out your Bible, you can't pull it up on your phone, just tell me the context of that verse about, you know, Satan roaring trying to eat up Christians, I'd have probably said, Probably something about sexual sin. Got to be, right? Maybe something about greed. Love of money is the root of all. But it's, not, it's about worry. It's about anxiety. That even something as domesticated, white-collar, respectable sin like that, that can be the jaws of Satan where he devours us. 
And so we've got to be quick to take every anxious thought captive to Christ in our prayers, casting our anxieties to Him, rolling the burden off of our back onto His back, saying, you fight my battles for me, God. And again, the key to this is meditating on until it becomes warm in our souls. God cares for me. God likes me. I'm the apple of His eye. I'm His spouse. He's not going to let me go down. Okay? These people don't have any warmth or compassion for me, but God does. And that's one of the lies that Satan tries to tell us. When life is hard, when it doesn't seem like God is near, when it doesn't seem like He's answering our prayers, when it's like, look at all the people around you, how they're treating you. Well, God's sovereign, right? So if they don't have any compassion for you, maybe God doesn't have any compassion either. And listen, intellectually, academically, we know it's not true. But experientially and circumstantially, it feels true because our life is so hard. And that's why prayer, meditation, journaling, worship is so important to say, I am going to have the feelings of my heart more dictated to me based on spiritual revealed truth rather than what my eyeballs can see and my ears can hear on a day-to-day basis. Live by faith, not by sight. The second thing that David probably means when he talks about they've closed up their hearts and their hearts are covered with fat is in some sense they seem to be prospering. I mean, they seem to be fat and happy. I mean, again, they're living in a palace. Everything seems to be going wonderful for them. It seems like God is blessing the wicked and punishing the good men. Look at verse 11. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. And he says, I feel like I'm having to walk on eggshells to stay alive. Have you ever felt that way in your ministry? Maybe because of the administration. Maybe going through all the COVID stuff. Maybe because of some teammates that you have a hard time. It's like, man, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells here. It's no fun to live that way. But there are seasons where God puts us in those times and we have to seek to be faithful anyway. Verse 12, he is like a lion that is eager to tear. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places, we know who that lion really is. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. So wake up, God. It seems like you're asleep and fight for me. Do the part that I can't do. I'm going to be faithful, God, but my faithfulness alone is going to accomplish zilch. I need your faithfulness to do the part I can't do. So see me, God. Save me, God. But then the third part of his prayer, which is the deepest, most important, is this. Satisfy me. Satisfy me, God. Look at verse 14. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to babies. Now, this is a little bit of a hard verse to translate, okay? And people are like, you know, some translators will try to kind of correct it, what they really think it's supposed to mean. But literally what he's saying is, God, I'm asking you to deliver me from people that right now it seems like you're blessing their socks off. They do seem fat and happy. They seem like they're prospering. They seem like they're getting everything they want. They seem like they're living in peace. They're able to have families. They're able to have kids. And they're probably going to live a long, healthy life and have a bunch of wealth and leave it to the next generation. They seem like they're prospering in this life. And I seem like I'm suffering and and a hair's breadth away from death. This doesn't seem right. But those are the men that I am asking that you would set me free. Okay. Now, It makes me think in the New Testament in Luke 16 when Jesus kind of gives his most sustained teaching on hell. You remember that one? The rich man and the beggar. And later when the rich man is in hell and he's begging, you know, talking to Abraham, just send 
that poor guy down here to touch my tongue with just a drop of water. And Abraham says, you had your good things in life. And now he has his good things. Here's the point. Even if we get everything in this life that we wanted, all our prayers got answered tomorrow, it won't satisfy the deepest desires of our soul. Guys, it's not wrong to pray for things that you want in this life. It's not wrong to pray for physical health. It's not wrong to pray that you'd have a lot of children, that they'd be healthy, that they'd become Christians, that you could have some wealth, that you could leave them after you die, that your ministry would prosper, that you would have a good name and a good reputation. Listen, all those things are good and right things to pray. But here's the thing that we have to remember, and I think this is part of what starts to happen to David at the very end of this psalm. Even if I got all the specific things that I'm praying for and that are good things to pray for, right? I'm not talking about the crazy charismatic who's out there praying for a new Ferrari every day. I'm talking about good, normal, biblical prayers. Even if I got all those things, it won't satisfy the deepest depths of my soul. That's not going to happen until the next life. And knowing that on the front end, guys, can be such a practical prevention from the temptation of sin. I don't know about y'all, but one of the things that I've been learning about myself the most lately is one of the times, and I think this is part of what mature Christians should do, is you should track the patterns of your sin and try to say, okay, what are the common places that I tend to get tempted the most, that I tend to fall the most, that I tend to stumble the most? And one of the things I've been noticing about me is just if I ever get in a place of boredom, right? If it's just a Friday night, nothing bad, nothing terrible, I'm just bored. Because at some level, there's a lie in the bottom of my heart that says, you deserve better than boredom. You deserve like constant joy and happiness. So go ahead and eat whatever you want, even if you're going to be a glutton, if that makes you happy, because it's kind of like you deserve it. Go ahead and watch whatever you want on TV, even if it's a little bit across the line, not that big of a deal. You deserve it. Boredom. Simple boredom. And listen, where does that lie come from? It comes from this lie and expectation. If I was getting the good life in this life, I'd be fully satisfied. But we just need to know that's not going to happen. Part of what helps me meditate on that is even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in paradise, right? no sickness, no suffering, no sadness, they bought into the lie really quickly, did they not? That you don't have enough. You're not fully satisfied. You need something more. So if they could buy into that temptation in paradise that they weren't fully satisfied, certainly I can buy into it in this life as a sinner living in a broken world. Look at what he says in verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Okay, now please hear me, guys. I hope you see, just, just from the logic of this own psalm, this isn't saying that we should just say, well, whatever's going to be, going to be. Life is going to stink and be hard and be boring, so I just, I've just suffered through it and, you know, be kind of morbid and uh, bored and just one of these kind of stoic Christians that stuff my emotions. Then when I get to heaven, it'll be great. We'll have a party forever and everything will be cool there. No, God cares about the here and now. And we're made to live in the here and now. And we should passionately pray about the big things and the small things in our life. Cast all of our anxieties. Pour them out. But there ought to be this constant reminder. Hey, God, I want you to bless me. And when you bless me, I want to enjoy it. And I want to give you the praise and the thanks. And when you don't bless me in the way that I think you should bless me, I want to trust you and persevere. But on my best days, on my worst days, on my hardest days, on my most boring days, I want to remember 
I'm never going to be fully satisfied until I see you face to face. And that's what I'm living. I'm living for the joy that's set before me. Give me the patience. Give me the endurance. Give me the hope. Give me the perseverance. Okay? I mean, even, even if Satan, I mean, if Saul had instantly died, all of David's enemies instantly killed, he had been established in his kingdom, in his palace, with power, with prestige, with peace, with prosperity. That'd be pretty good. I mean, that would feel like that answered most of the prayers. But would David be fully satisfied then? No, we know how that story goes, doesn't it? He'd get bored. He'd take a nap. He'd wake up. He'd see something. He'd ruin his life. Because no matter how good it gets in this life, it's never going to satisfy the deepest desires of our soul. Okay, now... um, as we said, kind of in the middle of this, you know, David started talking about the covenantal love of God in verse 7. Wondrously show your loving kindness. Wondrously show me your covenantal love. Guys, it's not enough just to know. I mean, if, one, if you get one thing maybe out of this whole class for the summer, it's this. Maybe the key, if there is a key <laughs> to real spiritual growth, it's this. And I read this in a, 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 this is the way Sinclair Ferguson would say it in his book, The Whole Christ. It's not just union with Christ, it's tasting union with Christ, right? It's not enough just to be an academic genius about my union with Christ. I've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. And guys, imagine if today for lunch you go out and you have the best feast of your life, the most enjoyable meal that you could imagine, all your favorite foods. Even if you gorge yourself, how long is it going to be before you're hungry again? Six hours? Maybe you make it all the way to breakfast tomorrow, right? But at some point you're going to be like, hey, I still got to eat again. That was a great meal. I feel like that meal changed my life and yet it didn't change it that much. I still got to have something to eat tomorrow. Now, put it in more of the spiritual. Let's say you go to a special worship service tonight. And whatever happens, you know, through the responsive readings, through the songs that are sang, through the preaching. I mean, you have a supernatural, out-of-the-ordinary, charismatic-type, Moses-on-the-mountain experience. You taste and see the goodness and the glory of God. How long is that going to last you? Maybe a week? Maybe a month? You're still humming that same song that got to you. And you're crying when you hum it. And you feel the presence of God. But at some point, if you just try to live off of that one experience, you'll get dry again, won't you? You'll get bored again. Guys, if you and your wife tonight go out and have the greatest date night of all time, and you have the most meaningful conversation together, and you feel closer, and you look in one another's eyes, and you feel like, I never loved you so much, and she loves me, and I'm so encouraged, but beautiful... Right? At best, go ask your wife, how long does that last? She's going to want another date night pretty soon. And so are you. And the point is, that's the way that we creatures are made, is that we have to have these ongoing experiences in life to sustain us. And that's not sinful. That's not wrong. Now, it can become sinful and wrong if I demand it. God, you have to meet me today in a special supernatural way or I won't be faithful. Well, that's moronic. I've got to be able to persevere during the darkest times. But it's also just as moronic to be some kind of stoic that say, well, 
I just live on truth and I don't need any experience. Where is that in the Bible? I mean, that's why I love the book of Psalms because you see this godly man who was so godly and wise that God called him to write part of the Bible. And yet he's saying, I need to see, I need to taste, I need to know, I need you to show it to me again. I need you to speak it into my soul in a fresh way. He's clinging, he's desperate, and it's a daily desperation. We need that same kind of thing. And that's why there's over 70 of David's prayers recorded in the book of Psalms. Guys, we're a leaky bucket. How do you keep a leaky bucket full? You either keep having to fill it up or you just immerse it in the water. And that's what good prayer and meditation does. It's a continual feeling. It's it filling. It's an immersion into the goodness of God. Okay, now, think about this and we'll be done. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. I mean, David was going to experience this one day. We, by God's grace, are going to experience this one day. But I love to think about the Lord Jesus Christ thinking about and praying about this prayer. Because, guys, in many ways, if we just wanted to practically evaluate our life... The outward blessings and pleasures that we get to experience. I think we could honestly say that at just a human level, at a tangible level, at a material level, we live and enjoy and experience better lives than the Lord Jesus ever got to experience. And yet I want you to think about him. He never complained. Not in a sinful way, right? He never lost faith. He, he never uh, gave up hope. He never gave in to temptations of boredom or, or pain or whatever. He was willing to embrace the pain and the pressure of life because he was enduring the cross, scorning its shame, despising its shame. Why? For the joy set before him. Even in some sense, the Lord Jesus Christ living on planet Earth in his full humanity had to live for the joy set before you. When I'm back with you, Father, and I get to experience the glory that I used to experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe he got a little taste of it, like at the Transfiguration when he was on planet Earth. But for the most part, he was living a painful human life like me and you. And he's living for the joy set before him. I mean, think about this, guys. Whatever the worst suffering that you or I have ever been through, if we've been maligned, if we've been slandered, if we've been misunderstood, maybe if we've gone, some, gone through some dark night of the soul where we felt cast off by God, maybe we've struggled with depression, maybe even suicidal thoughts, something like that. It's terrible, horrible. And yet Christ has certainly been through something worse. I mean, hung naked on the cross, scorned by virtually the whole world. Most of his followers have fled. And it seems like all the wicked powers of the world were being exalted in that moment. And even his father in that moment withdraws a sense of his covenantal love, withdraws a sense of his friendship, of his blessing, and his smile. And what did Christ have to say to himself in some sense? I'll be satisfied when I get to behold your face, when I rise, when I awake from the grave. And guys, he, he did all that for us. So here'd be my last thought. When you pray about your practical daily desires, and you should, just hold them loosely. Hey, God, I really want these things. But if you don't give them to me, I'm still going to trust you. And even if you do give them to me, I'm still going to find my deepest joy in you and not in the gifts. I'm going to love and enjoy the giver more than the gifts. 
So I hold my desires loosely, my prayer request loosely, and I cling to tight, I mean to, to Christ tightly because he has clung so tightly to me even to the death on the cross. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, as we've prayed so often before, please take the truths in our minds, make them burn, make them shine, make them transform us so that more and more we do live lives on a day-to-day basis that honor, that please you in the good days, in the bad days, and the boring, mundane days in between. Make us faithful. Make us into men of godliness. Make us into men of faith. Make us men of hope who taste and see in this life your goodness. But we don't put all our eggs in that basket because we know that won't satisfy the depths of our soul, that in a righteous way we're waiting by faith to be fully satisfied in the next life when we can see you face to face. Give us that strength, that grace, that perseverance. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.